Delbert Rohat, and I'm a senior fellow at the American Enterprise Institute. I'm joined by my friend Giselle Donnelly. I'm also with AEI and Yulia Joja with the Middle East Institute, Georgetown, and George Washington University. On our podcast, we talk about the challenges to European peace and security that have erupted along a line running from the Baltic Sea to the Black Sea, the Eastern Front, and about why those matter to the United States. Our special guest today is David Frum, staff writer at The Atlantic magazine, former speechwriter to President George W. Bush, author of 10 books, most recently of Trumpocalypse, and also an AEI alumnus. Welcome to the program. If our listeners enjoyed this episode, they should consider subscribing, rating, and reviewing us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever they get their podcasts. Thank you. I'm David. It's, it's a great pleasure to, to have you on the program almost two years into into this war, and I want to start by talking a little bit about um, the issue of Ukraine assistance. It seems an odd paradox that in Congress there seems to be a sizable and prominent group of Republicans uh, who criticize the administration for not doing enough to help Ukraine, uh, yet it seems almost impossible to actually get any assistance through the legislature at this at this present time, in spite of the fact that you have prominent voices, McCall, Roger Sterner, or Wicker, Cotton, Rich on the on the Senate side, pleading Biden to to do more. And one explanation for that was offered recently by our friend Rebecca Heinrichs on um, on, on Twitter, where she wrote that uh, really what is preventing a bipartisan yes is is the White House's willingness to negotiate in good faith over the issue of of border security and get to a yes on, on both securing the border and on helping 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 Ukraine. I mean I do do share this you know somewhat charitable read of the of the situation on the Republican side or is there more going on? No, I, I wish I could, but I can't. The president uh, made his request for $106 billion of emergency assistance to Ukraine, Israel, um, for the border, $14 billion for the border, and uh, some Indo-Pacific money. Uh, on October 20th, we are approaching the 100th day of the House Republicans' blockade of that request. Now, there, there is much to criticize about the administration's approach to Ukraine and to the border, too. Uh, on Ukraine, the administration has been loath to deliver war-winning weapons. Um, it, it, it's, very, it's been very diligent about uh, providing defeat-averting weapons, but it is not so comfortable with the war-winning weapons, especially with weapons that would give Ukraine the air superiority that NATO armies take for granted when they risk the lives of their troops um, uh, in battle. Uh, Americans would never willingly allow themselves or, or any real ally to fight under the conditions that Ukraine has to fight. Um, on the, 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 the complaint that the White House is not negotiating in good faith on the border is, is um, not accurate. Uh, look, the, the, because we have to understand what the border problem is that the Republicans are citing. Um, the border problem of today is very different from that of 15 years ago. 15 years ago, um, the United States dealt with classic illegal immigration. Um, persons, typically young men of working age, arriving singly or in groups, but... Um, but not in family clusters, trying to evade the law. The illegal immigrant who came to the United States in the 1980s, 1990s, 2000s, walked across the border and tried to evade contact with the authorities to slip clandestinely into the labor market. That's not what's happening today. What is happening, of the millions of people who are crossing the border, they seek contact with the authorities. They turn themselves in willingly. 
Um, they are arriving in family groups. They are minors. And they are hoping to use American asylum law, um, where they have a colorable claim uh, to uh, stay in the country for as long as they can. Now, they'll ultimately lose those asylum claims. About 80% or more of asylum claims are ultimately rejected. Um, but it takes a long time. Um, if you want to change that situation, um, it's not, you can't ju just say no. You can't just police it because they are using American law, international treaty, judicial precedents that exist, that are part of the corpus of law of the United States. Um, and so you, to, to meet the situation, you must, in the immediate term, process the claims faster, getting to know faster, that takes money, and you must change the law, and that takes an act of Congress. It, the administration alone cannot deal with this problem, and certainly not without resources. So what's to, what are they supposed to negotiate about? They're supposed to negotiate about con Congress is not changing the law. Congress is not overturning the relevant judicial precedents. Congress is not calling on the president to revisit asylum treaties. And Congress is certainly not providing the money to process an asylum claim in less than a decade. Well, so David, one is forced to the conclusion that there's something else going on here, or several something else that's going on. One, that the Republicans just like screaming about the border for the political uh, jollies it gives them and how it uh, excites their uh, their base. And and secondly, that, that this has almost nothing to do with Ukraine, really. It really is about denying President Biden anything that might look like a bipartisan success. Perhaps I'm too cynical, uh, so please talk me out of that. You're not, you're not cynical enough. Um, because look, at the same time as uh, Republicans are talk, complaining about the border, Republican state governments, places like Arkansas, the Dakotas, Florida, are making it easier for minors to do dangerous jobs, to work in meatpacking, uh, to work in chicken processing, roofing, one of the most dangerous jobs in the United States, um, working in restaurants, even serving alcohol. Now, who do they imagine those adolescents whom they're inviting to the workforce are? They're not native-born American young people. They are precisely the asylum seekers whom they otherwise say they don't want to come. When, when you allow 16-year-olds to do roofing um, in the many Republican states that are allowing it, those are Guatemalans, those are Nicaraguans, those are Salvadorians, those are Africans, those are Chinese, and everybody understands it. And if you didn't want them to come, you would not give, allow them to take the jobs they are coming in order to take. So it is bad faith, uh, I, I believe. Um, and secondly, it has nothing to do with the idea that you would say, look, um, we, we have, there are many problems in the United States, but you do not norm, if you actually support aid to Ukraine, you don't say, we're going to condition our aid to Ukraine on some other priority, um, re uh, reducing Medicare fraud, uh, uh, you know, raising test scores. Uh, there are a lot of things that we'd all like to do, but we don't condition one thing we want to do on another thing we want to do. We do the thing we want to do. If you vote, don't vote for the aid for Ukraine, it's because not a majority, but a crucial blocking minority opposed, substantively opposed the aid to Ukraine for a variety of reasons. Right now we have probably about 90 of the 100 senators who want to aid Ukraine. We have probably two-thirds of the members of the House who want Ukraine. And we have a solid majority of public opinion that wants to aid Ukraine. Uh, but about half of the House Republicans do not want to aid Ukraine, either because some, a few, affirmatively sympathize with the, the Russians, or many affirmatively want to show loyalty to Donald Trump, and he sympathizes with the Russians. So with that in mind, and with Tim Scott and DeSantis now, 
um, being out, are we looking, seems to me that we're looking at the even more certain Trump versus Biden election. And then we have to look at the Trump term. Uh, And in this context that you're describing with half of the Republicans uh, in the House, et cetera, are we then looking essentially long-term at a United States that is just not going to help Ukraine at all? And are we looking at a United States overall that is embracing or re-embracing then with whatever majority they have or may not have, but in terms of a dominant foreign policy, isolationism? Because you talk also about how the package is connected, of course, to Taiwan and is connected to Israel and is connected to United States posture abroad. So what what are we looking at for the next few months until election and in with a more real possibility of a second Trump administration of a foreign policy of the United States. There, there are voices that say, and these voices are affiliated with the Trump camp in the broadest sense, what the United States needs to do is cancel its obligations to Eastern Europe, cancel its obligations to Ukraine, cancel its obligations everywhere to focus entirely on defending Taiwan against the Chinese. And to my mind, this way of thinking is comparable to someone who says, look, um, I've got a lot of debts. Um, My most important debt is my mortgage. So in order to reassure the mortgage company, I'm going to default on the heating bill. I'm going to default on the lighting bill. I'm going to default on my credit card debt. I'm going to default to Bloomingdale's and Macy's. I'm going to default on every debt so that I can reassure the mortgage holder that they can trust me to pay the mortgage. What kind of moron mortgage company would believe that? If you're defaulting on one debt, you're going to default on every debt. That's obvious. Um, that the way you maintain credit, and in, in international relations term, deterrence without conflict is credit. It's all based on knowledge of what you could do if you chose. Um, the United States maintains its credit by honoring its obligations. Um, even the $14 bill from the lighting company, you pay that bill, that, that reassures the mortgage company to whom you owe a lot more, um, that yeah, this person meets his or her obligations. So. That, that's going to be the Trump excuse that we're defaulting on every obligation because of this overwhelming concern with China. But the Chinese can read it too. And Trump himself has, has said very recently in the past 48 hours, he will not defend Taiwan. Um, and I think that, that Trump is under like this gypsy curse that requires him every once in a while to blurt the truth among the many lies. I think that when he said that, he was speaking the truth. No, he will not defend Taiwan. So, so then to reiterate or to explicitly state it, because we have a significant number of our audience that is not based in the United States and everyone around the world is trying to make sense of what is happening now, this craziness. We are looking, in in your understanding, China is just an excuse, just like the border is an excuse right now. And we're looking at isolationism as a growing foreign policy foreign policy of the United States if Trump is going to win, right? It's it's a hazard. Um, And that's why groups like the one you are leading here, um, that's why the work you are doing at AEI, that's why the people in this audience are so important. Because none of these things are fated to happen. Uh, One one of the things when I talk about Trump, I invoke often, is Charles Dickens is a Christmas carol. And you remember that Ebenezer Scrooge is visited by three ghosts, and the last of them is the ghost of Christmas future. And Ebenezer 
Scrooge asked the ghost of Christmas future, are you a vision of things that will be or of things that may be? And the ghost in the story does not answer. Uh, but the events of the story make it clear it's a vision of things that may be, not of things that will be. So the future's in our, in our hands. Um, you know, we've got some negative choices. That back in the, I forget now, back in the 80s, one of um, uh, Dr. David Owen, who founded a, a third party in British politics, said he was complaining of Thatcher versus her then Labour opponent, and said she does not care and he does not dare. Um, and I think that's a little bit our problem to, today. Trump does not care and Biden does not dare. But uh, I think it's easier to fix Biden's problem than it is to fix Trump. David, um, before we sort of uh, uh, shift gears, I'd, I'd be interested in your take on broadly how the Republican Party got to this place. Is it is it just Trump or is there something else uh, afoot, you know, back in the Reagan years, uh, the most sought after bumper sticker among conservatives read, I'd rather be smashing Soviet imperialism. <laughs> that spirit seems entirely to have uh, uh, left the uh, Republican Party. And that's got to say, if, if there were one thing that you would bet on from 1985 to 2024, it would be that the antipathy toward Russian imperialism was uh, the the sort of c centerpiece of Republican foreign policy thinking. What the heck happened? Well, we could fill much more than this one single hour with that story. And there, there are many deep causes that go all the way back to the end of the Cold War. Um, the, the, uh, the opposition to Soviet imperialism joined together people who loved liberty for all, uh, with people who disliked left-wing social causes at home. Um, and the Soviets stood for both. Um, with the collapse of the Soviet Union, those two causes, those two issue clusters tended to diverge. Um, I, I remember uh, a friend of ours, Irving Kristol, a uh, scholar at AEI, wrote a piece, of, in retrospect, an extremely ominous piece um, about 1991 called My Cold War, something like that in which he said that from now on, he himself was going to be more interested in battling left-wing social causes at home than in dealing with international liberty. And it, it, Irving Kristol was some weeks ahead of Patrick Buchanan, who was saying the same thing. So those two causes have tended to diverge, and it's realigned politics. In the immediate term, I think um, uh, we have to deal with the disappointments and frustrations and failures of the Bush administration, the W. Bush administration, of which I was a minor part. Um, you know, the combination of the disappointment with Iraq and the global financial crisis really discredited the traditional leadership of the Republican Party, certainly discredited the Bush brand. Um, and that left things open for new people with new kinds of appeals in a world in which the voting base of the Republican Party was much more concerned with its domestic cultural enemies than with the menace of foreign authoritarianism and aggression. I should say um, we are recording this uh, just before the New Hampshire primary uh, as you put it in your in, in, in your sort of allusion to, to to Dickens I mean you know things can sort of take take different paths from 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 here but to some extent the writing seems to be on the wall right the Republican field is going to be reduced to just one candidate and I think there'll be a push to sort of consolidate the party and unify the party around 
around uh, Donald Trump and I think that will lead in some circles to a sort of emergence or re-emergence of coping mechanisms that we remember from the first Trump term. So among the more hawkish Republicans, I think we'll hear more people argue that you know we should not really listen to him literally and that that he uh, you know is not as much of an isolationist as he appears to be. Again, I don't want to pick up on our friend Rebecca Heinrichs, who is doing an excellent job making the case for actually helping Ukraine, but I mean, she noted on Twitter that that he uh, actually does not want to withdraw funding, that's her argument, but, but she insists that he can end the war quickly, including by threatening military force against uh, against Russia. But I'll leave that to consideration, but you know, that's, that's one coping uh, mechanism that I've seen. But there's also, uh, and perhaps even more worryingly, a sort of coping mechanism that I've noticed among my European friends, which is to say that, you know, we somehow muddled through a Trump administration once, we can do so again. Uh, we'll, you know, he'll be constrained. There'll be adults in the room. There'll be hawkish Republicans, internationalist voices in Congress. Uh, you know, things will be fine eventually. Uh, is this complacency dangerous? On, you know, both on the on the domestic side and on the on the on the European side. And if so, what alternative course of action would you recommend? Uh, this complacency is extremely dangerous. It's extremely dangerous to people's mental health as well, because it, it does no good um, to feed yourself Fruit Loops and say that you're eating protein, protein powder. Um, so when Trump says he can end the war in Ukraine, that is true. But it's true in the same sense. Winston Churchill said of Admiral Jellicoe, who is commander in chief of the British fleet during the First World War, the First World War, this dead, dreadful stalemate that went on for years and years. And Churchill said of Jellicoe, he was the only man on either side who could end the war in an afternoon. By which Churchill meant, if Jellicoe sank, fought a naval battle, and lost, and the British naval blockade of Germany ended, the war was over. Germany would win. Now, there was no, Germany couldn't win in one day, but Britain could lose in one day. In that sense, Trump is right. He can end the war in a day. He becomes president. He doesn't have to wait to Inauguration Day. He makes it clear the, the aid to Ukraine is, even the pretense of aid is ceasing, and Ukraine immediately must make the best deal it can make. It has no choice, and the deal won't be a very good deal at all. Um, so in that sense, yes, Trump will end the day, can end it 24 hours. The Ukrainian surrender talks begin the day after Trump um, wins the election, not, not, doesn't even wait for Inauguration Day. Um, but that's understand that what we're talking about is betrayal, sellout, abandonment, defeat, shame, um, geopolitical catastrophe. That's what it means. That's how this war ends in, in Trump's vision. Um, what, what will the Trump second term be like? So when Trump came to office the first time, his priorities were in more or less the following order. Basque and adulation, steel, don't work very hard. The first worked for a little while until he got voted, but mostly he didn't have a project. He didn't know what he wanted to do. And, and, and the stealing, I mean, he wanted to shut down the various mechanisms that got in the way of the stealing. Um, you know, until then it was considered bad form for a president to openly take bribes on Pennsylvania Avenue in a hotel with his name on it from foreign dignitaries who walked up the red carpet, but he did it. Turned out not to be illegal, or at least not enforceably illegal. Um, and, but it, he didn't have much he wanted to do. This time he has a lot he wants to do. He has a very specific program of revenge against everyone across him, by, which includes NATO and Ukraine, um, allied governments of all kinds. And he, um, he won't have as much energy he's older and more decrepit, 
but he knows what he wants to do and he understands the job a lot better. The second thing to bear in mind is um, I don't think people appreciate the degree of internal chaos into which the United States will be plunged in the second Trump term. Um, President Trump's first priority, a new, renewed President Trump's first priority, will be to shut down all the investigations into him, criminal, civil, um, all of them. Um, now, what the Watergate scandal of 1973, 74, 75 was all about was the president using his executive authority to shut down judicial investigations, criminal investigations of himself. In 1974, when the president was caught, it was never proved that Nixon did anything wrong in the first place. He probably did, but it was never proven. What was proven, beyond doubt, was that he had used his executive power to try to stop a judicial investigation. And in 1974, that was enough to force a president from office. That's what Trump says he intends to do around the campaign. That, he, at every rally, that's the main point. I intend to do what got Nixon driven from office. That's before he discovers that this may be a little harder than he thinks, and he may have to resort to more exotic powers, like the claim that the president has a right to self-pardon. Um, and when the, as a President Trump, a return President Trump tries this, the rest of the society is not going to meekly and mutely say, oh well, I, I, you know, I guess your 46% of the vote means that we have to turn off the American legal system now. They're going to be out in the streets. It's going to look like Tel Aviv eight months ago um, in New York and Cincinnati and Washington and Los Angeles and San Francisco. I mean, we are going to have, and we're going to have resignations and we're going to have generals confronted with illegal orders and some of them resigning and others of them making a decision about what to do. Um, we are, we're going to have a, a heart attack at the center of the American system of security. Um, and so when people say things like, what, I, I, you know, I go out there on the speaking circuit and I get questions, what does a second Trump term mean for the mining industry? I don't know. It means chaos. It means total, whatever happens in the mining industry when, they, when there's no president and no executive branch and no White House, that's what it means to the mining industry. I mean, I assume whoever oversees mining safety continues to go to work every day and do their jobs until they run out of Senate-confirmed people or they bump into a position where you need some action from Congress. But other than that kind of auto reflex from the bureaucracy, there won't be a government in a second Trump. Let me, David, if I may dig even a little bit deeper into that for, like Dalibor was saying, our European friends, um, the more conservative friends that are thinking they can muddle through a Trump administration. And I'll tell you what people are saying to to some extent, you know, to to hide behind um, this excuse, they're saying, well, there will be, okay, Ukraine, Ukraine, they won't help Ukraine, the Americans, but there will be NATO if Russia comes for Poland, if Russia comes for Romania, if Russia comes for, for the Baltics, there will be NATO. And the reality is that, that they tend to forget that the first Trump administration was for the duration of it with ups and downs and difficulties, but nevertheless um, populated by foreign policy, you name them, experts, specialists, people that knew what they were doing, um, whether that's Mattis or McMaster or Bolton or you name it. Um, so then what beyond the NATO, you can tell us, of course, that what you think is going to happen to NATO in January 2025, um, and I think that matters too, but, but first and foremost, talk us through what in maybe names and maybe in values a second Trump administration is going to look like. How is it going to be different from what we are familiar with from the first administration? 
Well, let me say to our European friends, what is NATO? It's a building in Brussels, a brand new one, uh, hundreds, maybe thousands of employees. And there's the armies, the armed forces of, of Poland and Germany and France and the United States. But ultimately, what NATO rests on is a personal commitment from the President of the United States. Because back of all of this is the nuclear force of the United States. And the nuclear force of the United States is a one-man dictatorship. Um, uh, th now, there are some restraints on the President's ability to, uh, ability to use the nuclear force. But there is no force on Earth that can make a President use nuclear weapons when the President doesn't want to. Um, and so everything in the so NATO, there, there are going to be interesting questions. What would it take for the United States to withdraw from NATO? The United States doesn't have to withdraw from NATO to, for NATO to be dead. All it has to do is for the president-elect of the United States to say, in his, uh, to say after the election in an interview, Estonia, you're on your own. And then Estonia's on its own. It doesn't matter what the document says. Estonia's on its own. Um, Poland, you're on your own. Estonia, Poland. Germany, you're on your own. Um, so it, it rests, the, all of these, all the building and the people, in the end it rests on one man's decision to act or not. And if that man is signaling that he won't act, then it doesn't matter about all the other structures. Um, who will staff the Trump? So let me give you, so let's, how does Trump become president again? Um, I think the 46% ceiling on his vote is very real. That's, that's what he got both in 2016 and 2020. Um, Biden, Biden got 50-something percent, um, but Biden's ceiling is higher, but his floor is also lower than Trump's. And the Republican strategy uh, for 2024 is pretty obviously to float enough um, nuisance candidates, maybe Joe Manchin, um, you, know, uh, uh, you know, maybe uh, Bobby Kennedy Jr., uh, you know, Cornell West, to float enough of them to squeeze Biden's 50 points up from last time down to something within reach of Trump's 46%. Um, uh, the Republicans might be able to win the Senate. They have more difficulty in the House. But probably what we're going to inherit uh, in this eventuality is a minority, is a Trump presidency with a minority plurality of the vote. That is, they'll have more votes than other people. Or sorry, an electoral college plurality, maybe fewer, a smaller share of the vote than Biden. Probably, uh, Biden defeated probably by a splintering of the Democratic coalition rather than by a surge in Republican vote, and Republican control of not more than one House of Congress. Um, so who? So how does this administration get staffed? Um, how, uh, in the atmosphere of chaos, who gets a Senate hearing? Uh, in, in the widespread view that the Trump victory is of doubtful legitimacy, uh, how do people get Senate confirmed? You know, and do people volunteer to submit themselves uh, to the um, uh, um, confirmation process? Most likely that the administration will be staffed by a bunch of acting people. Trump you know, uh, was a real innovator. I mean, not an innovator, it had been done before, but he maximized the scope of the president's ability to staff his administration with non-Senate confirmed people. So they're going to have doubtful legitimacy. And meanwhile, there are going to be people in the streets complaining about um, Trump's attacks on the judicial system. So what does it look like? So who's going to be there? I, I don't think it's going to be Jim Mattis. You know, one, one of the things that um, people have to, I mean, people's appetite for power is very great, but their desire to protect their reputations and pr avoid legal trouble is also great. Um, I, I don't, my crystal ball gets blurry at this point, but I, I just, it's not going to be like the Georgia Maloney, Georgina Maloney administration. It's not going to be, you know, somebody says some intemperate things during the campaign and then proves a pretty responsible person in office. It's not going to be like that. It is going to be a heart attack at the center of American government. So if, if you were advising European government, 
right now to you know, prepare for, 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 for the possibility of a, of, a, of a second Trump term or even for, for a continuation of, 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 of the Biden administration? What would you tell them to do that they are not presently doing? Well, the Biden, the, those are two very, and I'm sorry to do so much talking, but I guess... Oh, we do like the guests to occasionally say something. You're, you're committed and you, you, it's up to you whether to invite me back or not. But um, uh, the, the advice for the Biden, if Biden is reelected, is, um, you know, prepare for, um, you're going to have to prepare, prepare, prepare for change. Um, that whether Biden remains technically, you know, I mean, obviously he is slowing down and more and more power will tend to migrate out of the office of the president. Um, and you'll have to adapt to that. On the Ukraine front, um, you know, but on the Ukraine front, there will be some real possibilities, like uh, even if Congress is not cooperative, seizing the Russian assets and t turning them over to Ukraine. That becomes a really important project for European governments. Then, th there, then there's abundant money. Um, you know, build, developing relationships with the people in the Biden administration who do want to make sure that Ukraine has war winning, not just defeat averting weapons. So there, there, there's, I mean, a lot, it looks like the normal difficulties of dealing with an American administration. Um, if it's Trump, Europe has to think very seriously about how does it provide for its own defense in a world in which the American guarantee is going to be suddenly a lot less reliable if it's there at all. David, can we take a second uh, to calm my Trump derangement syndrome and to explore the hypothetical of a second Biden term that's got a small but presumably more disciplined majority in the House no one vote to vacate rules, um, probably a Republican Senate. Um, it, so I, the interesting thing would be to see how high up could be under those circumstances uh, for Ukraine. Mm -hmm. um, it would require um, discipline in the House, more ambition in the executive branch, and some form of cooperative uh, Senate that wasn't obstructionist yeah. to get war-winning weapons in the hands of Ukrainians. Yeah. Paint me a picture that gets us there uh, in 2025. Well, that, that's a pretty easy picture. Whoa. <laughs> I, I mean, the best case scenario here is actually, this is one of those resolutions where the best case scenario is quite plausible. Uh, the best case scenario is that uh, Biden is reelected. Um, there is rotation in the upper uh, branches of the defense establishment, um, and the people who are less fearful um, get reinforced, and the people who are more fearful, their numbers go down. Um, a Republic, the Republican Senate has been stalwart on Ukraine, um, and the, the, uh, Jim Risch, the, um, light, who would be the chair of the Senate Foreign Relations Committee has been stalwart. Um, you know the Thunes and so on. You know that the, uh, they are. They'll have lots of things to argue about with the administration, but they will be properly domestic policy things, um, not foreign policy things. And then, if there is a Democratic House with a majority of more than, I mean, if it, the Democratic House has a majority of four or five, there are people who might obstruct Ukraine aid. But if it has a majority of ten or twelve, um, then probably Ukraine aid is safe. And that's the that's the best case scenario. Uh, you know. Um, Biden reelected, um, some rotation of his people to make them dare more, Republican Senate, and a substantial, more than single-digit Democratic majority in the House. That's the best-case scenario. Before we let you go, let me throw out very quickly also the wild card, and that's, I guess, the spring health surprise on both sides. Um, there's something happening, and 
We're looking at the summer and the fall in which, for some reason, it can happen, uh, neither uh, Trump nor Biden are an option. So what does that then look like? Um, what should we be expecting? How crazy would that be? That is a terrifyingly realistic scenario. And by the way, it doesn't even have to be that scary. A scare. I mean, it could be Biden takes a fall. Um, you know, that uh, yeah. it just reminds people. Um, you know, Trump has a, a senior moment. Um, he's increasingly deranged. His yeah. followers don't seem to care. But, you know, once he's got the Republican nomination, it, it Trump has, you know, a solid grip on a minority of America. And right now, we're all amazed by the solid grip after he secures the nomination. Uh, we'll be reminded again, this is a minority of America. Um, there are a lot of people investing a lot of money in hope that they can throw this election into the House of Representatives, um, which is an, a part of the a constitutional test that hasn't, method that hasn't been used since the Thomas Jefferson election. Um, but if no one has a majority of the Electoral College, then the, according to the Constitution, the things shift into the House of Representatives, where the states vote one vote per state. Um, and since Republicans have a majority of the of the smaller states. They would be able to pick somebody. Now, maybe they'd pick, still pick Trump um, uh, if Trump numbers among the living. Um, if but if um, but it's there are people who are hoping that they can then pick somebody in the Democratic world that they like better than Biden. That is, I think, what the No Labels Project is about. Um, that's what the, the Republican backers of Bobby Kennedy half his money comes from half of Bobby Kennedy's super PAC money comes from a single big Republican donor. Um, that's, I think, what they have in mind, is finding some way to shift the election to the House of Representatives, and then a small number of very deep-pocketed people can pick the next president. I, I mean, it's, I don't think it's, these, things are, these schemes are workable. I mean, I think a lot of people look at politics and think there are these Harry Potter cheat, cheat codes that you can recite. And then, everyone, and then and the other 300 million people say, oh, well, you, you said the magic hocus-pocus phrase. I guess the rest of us are all stymied, and there's nothing we can do. I, I don't think it works that way. I think that um, it, you know, uh, um, as Benjamin David, discovered, uh, it, you, people, a former speechwriter should not admit that. Oh, I, I, no one knows better the reach <laughs> <Okay>. of words. <laughs> anyway, that, that I think that those are, you, you point to a very real fear. On that note, David, from we can't end on that. No, we have to end on a, on a better note. And, and so let's end on, on this note, which is um, to say there have been a lot of moments when America scared the world. Um, and this is one of them. Um, and many of them are forgotten because in the end, although America scared the world, America did the right thing. And as they say in the opening of The Godfather, and this is my mantra for the year 2024, the opening scene of The Godfather, I believe in America. And I think we all should. I like it. Three cheers to that. Again, David, thank you so much. Um, from me, Dalibur Rohaj. For me, Giselle Donnelly and Yulia Zoza. Thank you for listening to the Eastern Front, a podcast dedicated to security challenges that have erupted along the line running from the Baltic Sea to the Black Sea. You can find more episodes and additional content on our website, AEI.org, on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Please do get in touch with us on the platform formerly known as Twitter using the hashtag Eastern Front Pod, written as one word, and don't forget to sign up for the Eastern Front's newsletter through the link included in the show notes to receive more content from the Eastern Front. If you enjoyed this episode, please consider subscribing, rating and reviewing us. Thank you and goodbye.